0: Amen. If you would turn to Exodus chapter 20 in your Bibles this morning as we continue this Lord's Day to walk through the Ten Commandments together. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that we are now on the Fourth Commandment. So we have looked at the First Commandment, God's command that we should have no other gods before Him, that He is the one true God. The Second Commandment, that we should have no graven images No idols, no icons. We shouldn't use those things in worship to represent God or worship those things. And last Lord's Day we looked at the third commandment uh, concerning our taking the Lord's name in vain. And if you were with us last week, we looked at how uh, that can happen both in speech and in action. And so we should be very mindful uh, that we don't take the Lord's name in vain in what we say or in what we do. And today we come to the fourth commandment concerning Sabbath rest. And so we're going to be looking at verses 8-11 through 11 this Lord's Day. But just continuing to keep this in context, I'm going to read verses 1-11 through 11 for us. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you'd once again stand as I read this text for us, as we consider uh, how this fourth commandment uh, applies to us today. And this is what we read. We find God's people there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and we read this in His holy word. to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If you would pray with me. Father God, I do pray as we consider your word today, that you would help us to be attentive to it, that you would speak to us through it, that we might learn more about you, about ourselves, and about the gospel. We ask this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you guys a question, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if this applies to you. Uh, How many of you this morning uh, own a vehicle that has over 100,000 miles on it? Could you raise your hand? All right. So car dealers, take a look around here and find clients. Uh, How about 200,000 miles? All right. 300,000 miles. Oh. 400,000? 400? We got 400 in the back? I see those hands. 500,000 miles? 500? And this is like a farm, tractor, truck. No, just yours. 600,000 miles. Just tell us what it is. A million? Oh, okay. I don't really know why that applies, but it's got a million miles on it. So in order to have a vehicle, and most of us aren't going to have a million miles, but even 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, what's required? You have to take care of it. Uh, you have to do routine maintenance on a vehicle to have that many miles on it. So you have to do those things like change the oil, and you have to check the fluid, and you have to have it serviced, you have to take care of it. And for those of you who don't know anything about how to do any of this, uh, you can open your glove compartment and you can find that little owner's manual, and on that owner's manual uh, there will be instructions in there. It'll give you suggestions. It'll tell you when you need to do different required maintenance on the vehicle. And that owner's manual tells you that because that's who made the car. When you design something, when you make it, then you know something about it. And you know something about how to take care of it. When we come to the fourth commandment, we are reminded that God is the designer. God is the creator. God is the one who made us. And as our creator and our designer, God knows a thing or two about what we need. In fact, we find that God knows what we need better than we know what we need. There is maintenance that we need. And particularly, there is rest that we need. And that is what the fourth commandment teaches us about. But not just rest, it teaches teaches us about what kind of rest we need. And that's important because in our culture today and in the church today, we confuse some things with what God intended to be rest, and we try to find rest in our own efforts. And as a result of that, many of us have completely misunderstood what it is God is calling us to do in this fourth commandment. And so today I want to treat this commandment just as we have the previous three. I want us to ask three questions. What does this commandment teach us about the character of God? What does this commandment teach us about the heart of man? And how does this commandment point us towards Jesus? Or how does Jesus uh, affect this commandment or help us to better understand it and live it out? And so we'll begin as we have each week with that first question. What does this commandment teach us about the character of God? And we're reminded at this point, the first point there in your outline we're reminded that God governs our work and our rest. God governs our work and our rest. Meaning that God is sovereign over these things. God knows what we need because God is the one who created us. In fact, to better understand the fourth commandment, you have to better understand creation. Because here in the fourth commandment, we see that reference from God to creation in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in order to understand the Sabbath day teaching, in order to understand how that relates now to the Lord's day, in order to understand what it means to find our rest ultimately in Christ, we have to go back to the beginning. And so I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles uh, to the beginning, around the first page in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because in order to understand Exodus 20, you need to first understand what happens in the first two chapters of Genesis. Now, we've spent some time here in the past. In fact, I preached through the book of Genesis. And so you may recall a thing or two from our time in Genesis. And we see there in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as you read Genesis chapter 1 in this creation account, you see that in six days... God creates the heavens, the earth, the sky, the seas, everything that's in them. He creates all vegetation. He creates all life on the earth. He creates man. And then when we get there to Genesis chapter 2, we're told that on the seventh day, his work was finished. So thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so what we see here is God resting. And we don't actually see the word Sabbath used, but we see the same root word. The Hebrew word for Sabbath means that it means to cease and to desist. And that's the root word that we see here when it describes what God did on the seventh day. And it's important that we understand what God did here in order to understand the fourth commandment. The first thing that we see God did was He created everything. He made everything. And so God, as the creator of everything, knows what creation needs better than creation itself. And so God knows your needs better than you know your needs right now. And so consider, for example, what David writes in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Now many of us, we see God this way. We see God as a God who knows us, who knows what we're doing. We, We understand that God sees us at all times, that God knows what we're doing. But if all we have is this first part of Psalm 139, we may think that God is simply an observer. That God is kind of just looking down from the heavens and watching us and knows what we're doing better than uh, anyone else. But the psalmist David here goes on to say this. He says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now that tells us something entirely different about God, doesn't it? It tells us that God isn't just observing, but God knows. And you may think of it this way, perhaps... In marriage or even in just in friendship, there's times when someone knows you so well, uh, they know what you're going to say before you say it. Uh, they can finish your sentences. Uh, sometimes we don't do that in a kind way. Sometimes we're so tired of hearing something, we cut a person out. Well, I know what you're going to say now. Well, yeah, you've said that a hundred times. But sometimes we know what someone's going to say because they say it so many times. Uh, that's not what God is saying here. That's not what David is saying about God. David is not saying, well, God, I've said the same thing so many times. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. No, David says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. David is speaking here of the sovereignty of God. He goes on to say, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. David says here of God that that God knows him inside and out. God knows what he's going to say before he does it. God knows what he's going to do before he does it. This speaks of the awesomeness of God. David says, I can't even describe this. And how is it that God knows David and God knows you and I this well? Because God is the one who created us. In fact, he goes on in Psalm 139 to say that very thing. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so how does this relate to the fourth commandment? Well, it relates in that God knows exactly what we need better than we even know what we need. Which helps us to understand then what happens next in creation. God creates all things in Genesis 1. And then again in Genesis 2, we read that on the seventh day, God finished what He had done and He rested Now consider this. Why did God rest on the seventh day? And you think about rest, you think about you resting. Perhaps some of you came into church today tired. Perhaps you had a late night last night. Perhaps you had a busy week. Perhaps you were longing for that nap. Perhaps some of you have started that nap already this morning. Why is it that you look forward to that nap? because you're tired because you want to rest sometimes the best thing you can do the most spiritual thing you can do outside of during the sermon is to take that nap and to rest but when we think about rest and we think about God that can be confusing because we tire we wear out is that saying then that God wears out and God gets tired is the scripture saying that God was so exhausted From creating all things that on the seventh day he just needed to take a break? I don't think that's what the Scripture is saying. In fact, I know that's not what the Scripture is saying. Because the Scripture says the exact opposite about God. Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't sleep. Every time you close your eyes, you're being reminded of the greatness of God because you need sleep but God never does and isn't that a great thing we're not like the ancient Egyptians who believed that when the sun went down their God went to sleep and when the sun came up their God was born again We believe in the one true God who never sleeps and never slumbers. And so you and I can close our eyes at night. We can lay our head down on that pillow and we can rest knowing that He surely does have the whole world in His hands. He is the one true God. And He needs no rest. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And not only that, we read in Isaiah 40, Have you not known? Have you not heard The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And so, if God doesn't need rest because He is faint or weary, if God doesn't need rest because He's tired and needs to sleep, then then why did God rest? Well, we've got a great indication there in Genesis chapter 2 When it tells us, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Principally, God rests on the seventh day because His work is done. Because it's accomplished. There's a sense here, I believe, where the Scripture is telling us that God is glorified in the greatness of His creation. God looks at all that He's done, and He receives glory from it. In a a much lesser way, a way tainted by sin, you, you may think of it this way. Think of how we are so proud when we make something. I remember, as a newlywed, the first time I made a taco salad. I mean, listen, this was before Pinterest this was, this was pre-Google it. We had a cookbook. I had to read a recipe. I had to go to the store. I got the ingredients. And I, behold, a taco salad that I didn't buy at Taco Bell. And I made that taco salad, and I was proud of that taco salad. And so as Sandy's eating her taco salad, Hey, how's that taco salad? Well, it's good. Tell me more about that taco Isn't that a good taco salad? I was so proud of that taco salad. And maybe you don't care much about taco salad. But there's something you care about. There's probably been a day where you made something, you did something, and you stepped back for a second and you said, look, it's done. Look, it's good. Now, we are sinful and we are prideful. But imagine what it would be For the God of the universe, who is neither prideful or sinful, to create all things, and then to step back and to behold the glory of His creation. We see that God rested in that glory. That God sees the goodness of all that's made. And God can just rest because it is done and it is finished. In fact, I think this forecast us all the way to the cross where we see that very thing don't we where Christ there on the cross pays the due penalty for sin and it is finished it is done and friends that's why we can rest in Jesus that's why we don't need to labor and toil for our salvation because that work is finished and it is done and God receives the glory That's what we see here in creation. God rests because His work is done. But I think there's also another reason for this. I think that God rests not because He needs rest, but because God knows His creation needed rest. God knows that we would need rest. And so what God is doing here is He is setting a pattern for man, which brings us back to Exodus 20. Notice what that pattern is. Exodus 20, verses 8-11, through 11, the fourth commandment is not just teaching us about the seventh day. The fourth commandment is teaching us about the entire week. It's teaching us the pattern for which God created us. And notice the first thing in that pattern is this. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. God commands us in the fourth commandment to labor and to work. And that's a good thing. We tend to view work as a bad thing so often. In fact, many times we may say very flippantly that work is just a result of the fall. Well, there are aspects of work that are a result of the fall. God says to Adam and Eve after they fall after sin that they're going to labor and toil. There's going to be sweat. There's going to be thorns. Those things are a result of the fall. There's going to be pain and childbirth. That's a result of the fall. But work in and of itself, God created is a good thing. And that's why you see it before the fall. You see God working. You see God giving Adam and Eve the instruction to work. They're to cultivate and care for the garden. They're to name all the animals. They're they're to have dominion over that space, over that sanctuary, over that garden. There was a lot of work to be done there. And that work was a good thing. And so God here tells us that we are to work for those six days. You look around our culture today. Nothing good happens from idle time. Nothing good happens when people don't work or refuse to work. I'm not talking about getting to a point in your life where you work less or you retire. I'm talking about a culture where people just don't want to work. Where they don't want to do anything. And this is not a benefit. This is not for the goodness of our community and our culture. God designed us to be people who work and who work hard and put in a hard day's work to be satisfied in that work. But in that, He also designed us to be a people who would then rest. And so He sets this pattern for us. In six days you shall labor and do all your work, just like God did His work in those six days. But then verse 10 But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. In fact, he says here rather explicitly, you shouldn't try to cheat the system here and get somebody else to do your work for you. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to rest, but kids, you go do it. I'm going to rest, but no, my servants can go do it. No, he says, we need to rest. And in resting, he says, we make the Sabbath holy. Well, that's an indication here that God's talking about a rest perhaps very different than the kind of rest we're used to. He's talking about a rest that's rooted in remembering. He says, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. One commentator said it this way. I think it's helpful. He says, this is not merely a cognitive exercise any more than remembering your wedding anniversary means simply recalling it. As any forgetful husband can well attest, some concrete demonstration of remembrance is expected. Biblical remembrance requires action. So there's a little little marriage counseling in the midst of the sermon today, especially for any newlyweds or anybody planning on getting married soon. When you remember your anniversary, that does not mean that you turn to your spouse and say, I remembered we got married on this day. Have a good day especially when it's the first anniversary or the fifth anniversary or the 10th or 20th or 50th. No, when you say you remember an anniversary, that means you're going to celebrate that anniversary. That means you're going to make plans to celebrate that anniversary. Remembering is not simply turning to someone and saying, Oh yeah, 40 years ago we got married this day. What's for breakfast? So, remembering means you're going to do something about it. It means you're going to celebrate it. You're going to look back and you're going to think about what happened. And hopefully, you're going to have some fond memories about what happened. And maybe you have some jokes about what happened. Remember your uncle and what he said at the reception. And remember what happened then. And remember how it rained the whole time, but then it stopped raining. And remember this, remember that. you're going to think about that day. Maybe you pull out the, 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 the video. Some of you old folks, the VHS. Some older, the, the real film. Some older, I don't know. You got something etched in stone and you hold that up. You're going to look back with fond memories. Maybe you're going to look back on the last few years, few decades. You're going to talk about stuff. You're going to go out to eat. You'll go to Cinco and get you some quesadillas or go get you a steak at BJ's if you got a lot of money or something. Just... Have a big old time. And not just look back. You're you're, going to look ahead. You're probably going to talk about the future. I hope on your anniversary you don't look at each other and say, oh, we made it 20 years. We're done now. (laughs) I hope you're looking ahead. Well, Well, great 20 years. Let's look forward to the next 20 years. That's what you do when you remember something. Remembrance in the Scripture is remembrance that requires action. It's a celebration. So when the Scripture says to us, remember the Sabbath day, the instruction here isn't just to say, oh yeah, it's the Sabbath day. But it's to actually celebrate that Sabbath day. And for us in the church today, this side of the Scripture and the New Testament After Christ has now come, now that we call it the Lord's Day, now that we celebrate it the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week, what we are looking back on is the great work of the gospel in the past and what God has done and how He has saved us. And we're looking ahead with great anticipation to what He is going to do in the future. That is what the Lord's Day is intended to be. That is what it means to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But sadly, for so many of us, we have exchanged this type of rest that the Lord has offered for something else. Which is the second point there in your outline. What does this teach us about the heart of man? It teaches us that we often exchange rest for labor and for leisure. So our idea of rest is often not a biblical one. And we've seen this already in Exodus. And we've seen how God people were tempted not to rest, instead to further labor. And so if you remember in Exodus 16, God provides bread from heaven, manna from heaven. We sang about that very thing just a few moments ago. And you remember how God did that? He said for six days you should go out and gather it. And on that sixth day when you go out and gather it, there's going to be twice as much because God was providing an opportunity for them to rest on the seventh day. And so you remember what God's people did on the seventh day? They didn't trust God. And what did they do? They went out and they did more work. And they tried to gather bread. And God didn't provide it for them on that day. But rather than trust in Him and trust in the rest He was offering, they chose instead to labor. And friends, so many of us do the same thing. Many of us struggle to enter into the Lord's rest on the Lord's day because we have so much we feel we need to get done Perhaps we have things that didn't get done last week. Perhaps we're looking ahead to so much to get done this week. Perhaps we want to catch up or get a jump start. Perhaps we don't see biblical rest on the Lord's Day as very efficient. I read one quote along those lines not long ago. Billionaire Bill Gates, who many of you are familiar with. He was asked about religion and about his thoughts on God. And he said this, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. You may not have said it as Bill Gates did, but perhaps you've been tempted to think that. Perhaps you feel that way at times. Perhaps you're tempted to do many other things today, to labor on this day. I'm not just talking about your boss calls you into work or they've scheduled you to work on Sunday. I'm talking about when we choose to enter into labor on the Lord's day, when we choose to work on the Lord's day, when we don't trust God's design for us that six days is enough, when we don't use those six days very efficiently or effectively so we feel like we need to catch up on that Sunday. See, Many of us don't see our Sunday as any different than the rest of our week. Our culture certainly doesn't see it any different. And so oftentimes, the, the work and the busyness that we're involved in on Sundays is just a response to our culture. If you've got kids playing sports, involved in different programs, the culture's probably not going to set aside a Lord's Day for you. The culture's probably not going to say to you, you know, make, let's make sure we don't schedule things on Sunday because you need to rest in the Lord on that day. The culture's going to say, okay, there's a free day there. That there's a weekend there and they're going to fill your life with things. And a question you need to ask as a follower of Christ is, will your schedule be dictated by the culture? Or will your schedule be dictated by Christ and His Word? We see oftentimes we exchange this rest for labor. We also see that we exchange this rest for leisure. I, I don't know that that's so much of a picture we have in exodus but that's certainly a picture we have in our culture isn't it I mean, sunday's part of the weekend and the weekend is me time this is my time this is my time to to relax this is my time to kick back so often this time that we have for us isn't very restful is it i mentioned before how often we come back from vacations and what do we say I need a vacation for my vacation. I'll tell you what, from recent experience, you want to find the least rested, grumpiest people on the planet Earth? Orlando, Florida. I went on a vacation there. And I'll tell you, I did not look around and see people standing in line for hours or sitting in traffic for hours who had a look on their face of, look how rested I am. I'm just so rested now. No, people on vacation so often just go, go, go. They involve themselves in a different type of busyness than they have the other 51 weeks of the year. And so they come back from vacation and need a vacation from their vacation. Or for others of us, it's not so much that one week a year. It's just kind of how we schedule what we do for leisure. The things we invest in, the things that we own, and I'm sure you've heard before, if we're not careful those things that we own end up owning us years ago I remember when we were in Bowling Green I was contacting a family in our church that hadn't been in a while and I was just checking in on them and as I started talking to the husband he he started to explain where they'd been he said well pastor you know we we, we wanted to buy a boat and so we we spent a little bit more when we were planning on this boat and so we feel like we've got to be out on the boat a lot and so as he started talking about his weekends and the summer and everything going on, he just everything was about the boat. The, the boat was dictating what he did with his time. Now, I'm not anti-boat. If you got a boat, take me out on it. It's good to have a friend with a boat. But don't let the boat dictate your schedule. Don't let the boat tell you what you're to do with your Lord's Day. Let the Scripture tell you what you're to do on the Lord's Day. You see, what we do is we involve ourselves in so much busyness, and so whether it's labor or leisure, we exchange the rest that God has provided for us for a cheap alternative that doesn't truly fulfill us. And so what we find the Scripture pointing us towards then, is point three here, is that in order to find true rest, we have to look to the Gospel You see, true rest comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. And I think more than any other commandment, we see a very clear biblical teaching here on exactly how Jesus transforms this commandment. Throughout the Old Testament, we have this Sabbath teaching. And so the Sabbath was the last day of the week. The Sabbath was on Saturday. In fact, the Sabbath for the Jewish people started Friday night and went into Saturday night. This was their Sabbath. But what we see in the Scripture is as Jesus comes, as Jesus is crucified and resurrected, we see this Sabbath teaching being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He fulfills the Sabbath, and when I say He fulfills it, He invites people to find their rest ultimately in Him to the point that the church then began to enter into the Sabbath rest by calling it the Lord's Day. By doing it the first day of the week, the day when Christ was resurrected, the tomb was empty. And so everything in their schedule changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why for Christians today, we don't have an Old Testament Sabbath. We have a New Testament Lord's Day. That's why for Christians today, we don't end our week with Sabbath rest. We start our week with a focus on the Lord on the Lord's day. And we see this clearly in the Scripture. Paul teaches in Colossians 2. These things, speaking of all these Old Testament regulations regarding the Sabbath, these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. That's why we see in Matthew 11, that passage that we read at the beginning of our service, Jesus says, Come to Me. He's teaching us something about rest. He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden. So just think about that for a second. This morning, have you labored? Have you worked this week? Perhaps beyond work, perhaps you are burdened today. You are heavy laden. You have something weighty on your shoulders this morning. Jesus invites us to come to Him if we labor, if we're heavy laden. And He says, He will give us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus looks around and says, Listen, this this Sabbath teaching, it, it pointed towards me. Find your rest in me. And then you remember what happens right after this in Matthew? Matthew chapter 12. It's the passage that Pastor Matt read during the offering. Right after this, on the Sabbath, Jesus and the disciples are picking grain in a field. And the Pharisees see this, and they begin to scold them and accuse them. How how dare they do this on the Sabbath? And so imagine Jesus here has just taught them, well, no, to find your rest, you find it in me. And the Pharisees are saying, no, to find rest, you don't pick grain. And so what does Jesus say? He says to them, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In essence, Jesus is saying exactly what he said in Matthew 11. You find your rest in me. And so how does this apply to us today? Well, it applies in this way. I think God is calling us at Bloomfield Baptist Church to observe a Sabbath rest. But that Sabbath rest comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it this way. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so practically speaking, how do we apply this? Well, we begin by making this a day of remembrance. Just like your anniversary. Remembrance is not just acknowledging that this is the Lord's Day. It's celebrating that this is the Lord's Day. And friends, you should have A lot to celebrate if you're a follower of Christ today every sin you've ever committed every sin you will ever commit every wicked thing that has entered into your mind if you were in Christ today it has been nailed to the cross Jesus died in your place. All week long, there's an accuser who wants to say to you, oh, no, you're, you're bad, you're rotten, you're, you're evil. If anybody ever found that out, if anybody ever knew, if anybody ever heard that, if anybody ever caught you doing that, and the enemy wants you to walk around with your head hung low, and in shame and in darkness, in the gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, follower of Christ, hold your head high. And celebrate the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Friend, you have been forgiven. And that is something worth celebrating. Amen? That is something we should gather every Lord's Day. And sing about as we do. And preach about as we do. And thank God for as we do. And not just what He has done, but what He will do. So that when the days come, as they have for many of you, when there is suffering, and when there is trial, and when there is death and disease and tears and turmoil, that is not the finished word. But the finished word is, Behold, I am making all things new, Christ says. The finished word is that one day, no more suffering, no more tears. And so when we celebrate each Lord's Day, we not only look back on what He's done, we look forward to what He will do. And friend, that is how we need to start our week out. And that's why we gather each Lord's Day to look back and to look ahead. That is why we gather each day, this Lord's Day, to celebrate what God has done. And so how do we practically apply this? We celebrate these things. And we need to be mindful that the Lord's Day does not begin when you walk into the church doors or end when you leave them. The Lord's Day will not end at 12.15 today. The Lord's Day is the Lord's Day. And so this should be a day that we focus on celebrating what God has done, and what God will do. This should not be a day when as we are wrapping up the service, you're going through your to-do list. You're trying to catch up on what you didn't get done last week. You're trying to get ahead on what's coming this week. It should be a day that is different. It should be a day that we rest in the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean we can do and not do? I'll leave that up to your conscience and your convictions. But I want to warn you of this. Be careful not to be like the Pharisees of old who were more concerned on who was picking grain on the Sabbath than that they missed that Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. Be careful that you don't make the Lord's Day a list of things to not do. Rather, focus on what is it that on the Lord's Day you should do. What are the practical things you need to do on this day? What are the things you need to do to prepare for this day? The Old Testament Sabbath began the night before. I think a great way to prepare for the Lord's Day is to begin the night before. You can read what we're going to preach on the next day. If you've never been here to Bloomfield Baptist Church, you may not even know how many commandments there are. But you can probably guess, if we did the fourth commandment this week, what are we going to look at next week? You guys are bright. The fifth commandment. That's right. And so if we ended today in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, where are we probably going to pick up next week? Verse 12! Man, y'all are theologians this morning. You got it. And so spend some time reading the passage and praying about the passage and preparing your heart for our time of worship. And that begins with understanding that to rest in the Lord, we need to repent. We need to trust in Him. Friends, you will find no rest on the Lord's day if you are in unrepentant sin. You'll find no rest if you're fleeing from God's Word. You'll find no rest if you're living in open disobedience to what His Word says. And so in order to truly rest in Christ, you need to repent and trust in Christ. And so today, during this time of response, I'd like you to consider these things, to consider, is there something you need to repent of today? Are there areas of sin in your life that you are aware of, that the Scriptures is clear on, that you need to turn from? Is there an area you need to trust to Jesus today? Or are you struggling to celebrate the Lord's Day because your life is so filled with either labor or leisure or whatever it is that your weekends are overflowing and you need to step back and just completely reconsider well, what does it mean to remember this Sabbath day? What does it mean to celebrate this Lord's Day? Those are questions to ask and things to consider as we come into this time of response. So if you would stand together as I pray for us and as we consider how God would have us apply this word today. Father, we come to you in Christ's name. And we come to you on Christ's day. Father, I ask that you might do a work In us today to help us to remember. To remember the the greatness of the gospel. To remember what is to come. And Lord, just as we see that picture of you resting in the first creation, would you help us, Lord, to rest in the new creation? to, To rest in the promises of the gospel? Would you help us to trust in you today? Would you help us to come to you in our labor in our heavy ladenness, would you give us rest? And so, Father, I pray for those today who, who are not experiencing that rest because of sin. Lord, I pray that they might repent. I pray for others, Lord, who have exchanged that rest for, for labor and for leisure and for, for cheap substitutes. Lord, I pray that they might repent and trust in you. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are overwhelmed today, Lord, that they might find rest in Christ.